with a, a corny joke this morning. This is this is more corny than usual. Okay, this is really corny. But I heard about uh, a blonde lady. There was a blonde lady that <clears throat> she was out weed eating one particular morning, and while she was weed eating her, she cut off her cat's tail. She cut off her cat's tail. She felt so bad. It was an accident. How in the world did she do that? Well, the cat was in the bushes while she was weeding, and she didn't see her cat, and she cut off the cat's tail, and the cat yelled out a yell, and she grabbed the tail, and she grabbed the cat, and she told her best friend who was in the yard with her, she says, I'm taking my cat to Walmart. I'm going to take my cat to Walmart. And her best friend said, what? Why would you take your cat to Walmart? And this lady, this blonde lady said, hello, hello, they are the biggest we tellers in the world. Corny. Corny, I told you. Okay. I told you it was bad. <laughs> Some of you are getting it right now. Okay. <clears throat> Zero. <laughs> uh, okay. A number of years ago, just ignore the smoke going up. That's our barbecue out there. A number of years ago, Pope John Paul uh, was shot. He was shot by a would-be assassin. And after he recovered, he went to visit his would-be assassin in the hospital. And he had a long visit with him. And when he got done, he extended forgiveness to this man who shot him and attempted to take his life. And the next day, headlines clear around the world basically said the same thing. Pope John Paul extends grace to his would-be assassin. Now, when we think of that word grace, there are many different pictures that come to our mind. People attribute that word to a ballet dancer. They're full of grace. Or they attribute that to the Queen of England when all of a sudden she sews up for an event. The grace is there because she's there. Sometimes when we think of grace, we think of a beautiful coordinated movement. Or we think of somebody who prays a prayer at the mealtime. That's grace. But biblically speaking, grace is God's unmerited favor. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't jump through enough who's for it. It is just something that God continually gives his people. It is grace, unearned, unrepayable. It is constant. It is ever-present. It goes with us on the mountaintop. It goes with us in the valley. It goes with us in the pit. It goes with us in the cave. God's grace is always present, always there. His unmerited favor does not change. It is bestowed upon you. It's bestowed upon me. It's bestowed upon all of his people for all time. God's grace is bestowed upon you and it's bestowed upon me. Now, biblically speaking, it means unmerited favor, extending special favor to someone who does not deserve it, who can't earn it, who can't repay it. And every once in a while in Scripture, we come across a biblical example of grace that is so outstanding that it captures our imagination. And that's where we're at in the story of David this morning. 
If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9. We find one of those moments in the life of David. It is, in my opinion, one of the greatest illustrations of grace in all the Old Testament. It involves an obscure man with almost an unpronounceable name. Let me take a shot at it, Pastor Brad. Methobeth Seth. But this morning, we're going to call him Meth. Okay? We're going to make it easy. We're just going to nickname him Meth uh, to make it easy. And it's a beautiful, unforgettable story. And let me set the scene for you. Let me just give you a little bit of background. Remember, we've been talking about David. And we've been saying that this young man, 15, 16, 17 years of old, he's anointed the new king of Israel, king-elect. And he's thrust into public ministry when all of a sudden he kills that huge nine feet, nine inch tall Goliath. And he becomes a so-called rock star overnight. And people begin to sing his praises. And all of a sudden, King Saul begins to grow jealous of him. And as a result of that, tries to kill him three times. And David, as a result, begins to run as a fugitive. He goes in the valleys. He goes in the mountaintops. He hides out in the caves. And over a period of time, he gathers a guerrilla warfare group of cadre of soldiers and individuals, and they come to him. And all of a sudden, he gets the news. King Saul and his son, his sons are dead, including Jonathan, your best friend. In fact, they're hanging the headless bodies on the Philistine temple wall. And they're swinging in the wind. They're dead. Dead. And David, as a result of that, becomes the king in Hebron for seven and a half years. And then pretty soon they come to him and say, would you be the king over all of us? And he united Judah and Jerusalem together and all the 12 tribes. And as a result of David's administration, God blesses him. And Israel and Jerusalem, it grows from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. And there's all kinds of commerce and there's all kinds of industry, you might want to say. And there's open trade routes with Phoenicia and all these other neighboring in Egypt and all these other neighboring communities. Spices and gold and silver and everybody is being affected. And there's national revival as well. Remember last week we said that they were bringing the furniture pieces back and they moved the Ark of the Covenant. The very presence of God was brought back there and the people began to worship God 24 hours a day. There were musicians and singers in that particular area and it was a national revival. And this has been going on for a number of years. All of these things have been happening and David has been king for a number of years uniting all the people together when all of a sudden he remembers he remembers a promise that he made to his best friend in all the world. He made to Jonathan before he died. Look at verse 1 with me. David asked, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, David said, Is there anyone? Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Is there anyone of the lineage, you might want to say, of of Jonathan, that I may show him kindness. And, and this is where the NIV doesn't do justice to some words. It's a pretty good translation. But the word kindness in our meaning today means soft tenderness. But what David was actually expressing was much deeper than that. The original Hebrew word here translated means 
grace. Unmerited favor. Is there anyone of Jonathan and Saul's lineage that I can bestow special favor upon? And that's what he was asking. Is there anyone like that? Again, biblical grace is demonstrated by the love that is undeserved and unearned and unrepayable. So David ponders, is there anyone in this entire area that's related to, to, to Saul, to Jonathan, that I may bestow and demonstrate this kind of love toward? Now, why did he want to do that? Well, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, you see, David and, John, and Jonathan, they made a covenant with one another. And 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 13 and 14, I want you to listen to this arrangement that they made with one another. This is Jonathan speaking. If it please, if it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do also to Jonathan. He's talking about himself. And more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I'm still alive... Will you not show me loving kindness? There it is again, grace of the Lord, that I may not die. You see, Jonathan knew that David was going to be the next king of Israel. He knew that. Jonathan knew that he was going to be the next king of Israel. And he knew, as was the custom of that day, among many dynasties, that these kings that were newly elected would often kill the family members that were left of that dynasty. It has happened all the way down through history. I'm thinking about the Roman Caesars. They murdered their brothers and their sister, even their mother. I'm thinking about Genghis Khan. Did you know that Genghis Khan killed a brother, one of his own sons, a mother-in-law, a father-in-law? And did you know that Bloody Mary Tudor, the Queen of England, she had her own siblings murdered. So Jonathan is saying here, David, when you get to the throne, as you surely will, will you spare my life and will you spare the descendants, my descendants, and will you let us live in prosperity? Will you take care of us and will you protect us that we may not be forgotten? And without hesitation, the Bible says that David agrees out of his love for Jonathan. In fact, I want you to listen to verses 16 and 17 of chapter 20. This is what it says. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him and because he loved him as he loved his own life. Remember, this is a tight-knit friendship. Two warriors, two young men, they were the best of friends, not in a homosexual way. David would do anything for Jonathan, and Jonathan would do anything for David, even risk going against his father who was so intent on killing David. Make me a promise that you will protect me and my household. And David said, out of my love for you, Absolutely, absolutely, I'll do this for you, Jonathan. Now, I think it worth noting, going back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, that David asks, is there anyone? He doesn't ask, is there anyone qualified? 
is there anyone qualified? He doesn't ask, is there anyone worthy? He says, is there anyone, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they look like, regardless of their position, regardless of their handicap, regardless of their disability, regardless of where they've been living at, is there anyone that I can show grace toward? Is there any relatives of Jonathan left alive? Well, notice they identified someone. Verses 2 through 4, look at it with me. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. And they called to him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. And notice the king asked, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul, Jonathan's house, to whom I can show God's kindness? There's that word again, grace. And Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in both feet. That's very significant there. He qualifies it. David asks, is there anyone? And then Ziba comes along and says, yes, he still has a son, but he's crippled in both feet. In other words, David, listen, this is the context, I believe. David, you better think twice about bringing this crippled into your home because he may not fit in this handsome palace area and he may not fit with your fit Children who are vim, who have vim and vigor, who are healthy. He has a disability. And you know how we look down on disabilities. Because from the story of Job, we understand that Job lost his health, and he lost his wealth, and he lost his livestock. And all of a sudden, his friends came to him and said, What did you do wrong, Job? Did you sin? Did you disobey God? Did you have this disability in your life? What did you do wrong? Job didn't do anything wrong. Ziba didn't do anything. Uh, this uh, yeah, man, Meth did not do anything wrong. But Ziba wants him to understand. He's got a problem. He doesn't look like the all-American type. He's got a major disability. He's got something wrong with him. David, are you going to show unmerited favor toward this person? Are you going to do that? Well, he asked him if he had any living descendants. And Ziba said, yes, but he's crippled. He's crippled. And David's response is beautiful. He does not ask how badly crippled he is. He doesn't ask how it happened. He doesn't ask how, what he looked like. He just said, where is he located at? Where is this man at? And that's the way grace is. Grace isn't picky. Grace doesn't look for things that have been done that deserve the love of God. Grace operates from the responses of people, the ability of the individual, the performance of the individual. Grace operates apart from what the person looks like, what they act. Grace is all one-sided. Grace is giving himself in full acceptance to someone who does not earn it, uh, who cannot deserve it, and can't repay Years ago, I watched the Hallmark Hall of Fame movie with uh, Jessica Lange. She played the older sister, and she had three younger siblings. And the mother and father died at a very early age. And with a steel backbone and fortitude, the character she played basically ran her brothers into the ground almost, 
trying to get them to understand that they needed to work together to build this farm and make something out of their lives. And she pushed them and pushed them and pushed them until they had one of the most prosperous farms in that state of North Dakota. And in a very moving scene, or a couple of scenes, as they are middle-aged, she has a baby brother, and this baby brother is more of a son than a brother to her. And this baby brother is kind of spoiled. And he begins to flirt with the farmer's wife, and the flirtatiousness evolves into an emotional relationship and then a physical relationship. And that farmer finds her brother and his wife together and he shoots them dead, murders them. After the grieving, she goes to prison and she visits that man. And with tears in her eyes, she says, I forgive you. And then she even tries to get that man a reduced sentence. Somebody said, grace and forgiveness is the fragrance that is shed on the hill of the rose that crushes it. While we are yet sinners, the Bible says, God's love is bestowed upon us. This is a wonderful example in the Old Testament here of God's grace and his tender mercies. So David asked the question, going back to our text. He asked the question, he says, where is he? Where is he at? And I want you to notice verse 4, the second part. Zeba answered, he's at the house of Maker, the son of Amel, in Lodibar. Now that last geographical term does not mean very much to us, but if we dig just a little bit, we know that lo in Hebrew means no, and we know that Debar means pasture land. In other words, he's living on the other side of Burns, down on the other side of McDermott. He's living out there in the desert where there is no pasture land. There is no green land. He's barely eking out an existence. He's hiding out someplace where there is no green farmland. There is no irrigated farmland where there is no pasture land. He is barely making it. He's not only crippled, but he's poor. And he can't hardly do manual labor. And he doesn't have anything to speak in his life. He's out in Lodibar. He's out where there's no pasture land. He's on the outskirts of Palestine. He's out in the Negev. He's out in the desert. And since the custom of that day was to kill anyone, to kill anyone, from a previous dynasty, such people were either murdered or they hid out someplace. And that's what's happening to him. He's hid out there. And Meth not only lives in an obscure, desolate place, but on top of this, as I said, he's crippled. You say, Pastor Ron, how did he become crippled? Well, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, that when Meth's nurse found out that Saul and Jonathan, his father, had died, that she gathered up meth quickly in her arms as a five-year-old boy, and she runs out the door, and as she's running across the field in a hurried state, she slips and falls, and the boy lands in a very awkward position, and both of his legs 
become deformed and he becomes disabled. And as a result of that fall, he's living out there in Lodibar. He can't hardly work and he's hiding out. And, and can you imagine when all of a sudden David's soldiers appear? This is what happens. David's soldiers appear. They knock on his door. And I'm, I imagine he's thinking to himself, I've been waiting all these years. I've been hiding out. And now I'm found out. I wonder what he's going to do what the king is going to do with me. Surely he's going to torture me. Surely he's going to murder me. Surely he's going to kill me. I am Jonathan's son. And this is what they do to people like me. So the Bible says that the soldiers gathered him up and said, let's go back to Jerusalem. And I want you to look at verse 6 and what happens. When Meth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Meth, and notice the exclamation point, Meth, so Beth, <laughs> exclamation point, your servant, he replied, your servant. What a moment. This frightened young man, he's frightened because of all those reasons. He throws aside his, his crutches and he prostrates himself before the king, the king who, by the way, had all the sovereign rights to spare his life or to behead him. And any moment he's thinking, he's going to kill me. He's going to torture me. And David said, Meth! Meth! And he said, it's true. My paraphrase, I'm he. He had no, no idea what to expect. And look at uh, verse 7. Don't be afraid. He's cowering in fear. David says, don't be afraid. David said for to him, for I will, what does he say? For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. That are, there's that word again. Grace, unmerited favor. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will eat at my table. And look at verse 8. Meth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you would notice? Isn't that interesting? A dead dog like me. I'm a nobody. I have nothing. I'm crippled. I'm disabled. In the world's eyes, I am absolutely a zero. And yet, David looked at that young man because of grace and the context tells us he embraced him. It doesn't say that, but I believe it did. He embraced him. And he said, I'm going to give you all of the lands, all of the lands of your grandfather you no longer have to eke out existence. You'll have all of these square miles. Saul was a rich man. Every single inch of his property I'm going to give back to you and your family. And on top of that, Meth, you can eat at my table anytime. What was David saying? You're my son. You're my son with all the rights and the privileges that are years. 
I read a number of years ago about uh, Thomas Jefferson, the former president of the United States. Did you know that Thomas Jefferson uh, liked to ride horses? And that as a custom of that day, he would get on his horse and he would ride long ways. And instead of riding in a wagon or, you know, uh, like you would think that a lot of people would ride or in a buggy or whatever, he would just climb on his horse and he would go. And one time he was riding with a group of riders and they came to a swollen river. And uh, there, was this, there was this wayfarer, there was this guy that was standing on the edge of the swollen river. And uh, he kept looking at these people crossing the river. And finally, he saw President Thomas Jefferson. And he said, hey, could I have a ride across the river? And Jefferson said, sure, hop aboard. He reached down with his arm and he pulled this man on the back of his horse. And they went across the river. And when he got to the other side, one of the men that was in the party said, why did you ask the President of the United States to give you a ride across the Stolen River? He said, President, I didn't know he was the President of our United States. All I know is that there are some no faces and there are some yes faces. And his was a yes face. Why is it, why is it, why is it that we think God has no face? Why is it that we think that God is mean and cruel? Why is it that we think that He wouldn't, that He would harm His children? There are two, two principles, two things that I want to share with you this morning. Two very brief principles this morning. First of all, we know that God extends His unmerited favor, unearned, undeserved, by sending Jesus Christ on our behalf to take the penalty for our sins. This is what the Scripture says. It says, for God so loved the world. That's how much God loves you. He loved the, so loved the world that He gave. He gave Jesus to us. The Scripture says, while we're yet sinners... God loves us. Unmerited favor. Now, I want to tell you that David the king, out of sheer love for Jonathan, demonstrated love toward this handicapped son of his. So out of his love for us, the Bible says, Jesus Christ paid the penalty on the cross for our sins and demonstrated God's love. And the second principle I want to share with you very briefly this morning is this. God after we ask forgiveness and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, declares us His children. Declares us His children. Sonship with all the rights and with all the privileges of what that means. He declares us sonship. In other words, we can call Him Abba, Father, which means Aramaic, it means Dada, our Daddy. With all the rights and privileges of that. Now, I want to tell you, when Meph sat down at the king's table, he was treated like any other son or daughter of the king. And that's the way it is now, and that's the way it will be for all eternity. Did you know the Bible says that we're going to feast, we're going to sit down, 
and we're going to be with our friends and we're going to be with our family member and the Lord is going to be there and we're going to and, and we're going to see Paul and we're going to see John on either side of us. We're going to see Meth. We're going to see David. We're going to see John Wesley. We're going to see Martin Luther. We're going to see King David himself. And we're all going to be feasting together for all of eternity, enjoying one another's company along with this young man by the name of Meth. And the Lord will look at us and he'll say with his yes face, yes face, he'll say, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. He say, Pastor Ron, how do you respond to that grace? The Bible says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me?